Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. Welcome to Purpose Driven Sobriety. Welcome to the Purpose Driven Sobriety Podcast. Um, my name is Christine, and I'm an alcoholic. Um, today, and I'm going to have to warn you, Christopher, and, I, and um, my guest is, is a wonderful man that I met on the internet. <laughs> How's that one? Um, you know, in, in, in a, a recovery, there are so many wonderful recovery groups on social media that, that it truly does have, it, have its place. So, but I am, um, I, I hope that bad words don't offend you, Christopher, because I'm, I'm on fire today. And let me tell you, I fucking hate addiction. Um, I just I just recorded uh, an episode a couple of hours ago, and during that recording, my phone was blowing up, and I had a sponsee that was at the lake um, threatening suicide. She had relapsed, and and um, you know I just hate this disease. It uh, I just fucking hate it, man. But you know what? The fact of the matter is, and and I'll get off my soapbox because this show is about you today. Um, but the fact of the matter is, is is when you have relapsed, so the fuck what? Get up and and get back on the beam. Get back to what what worked. You know, I think that one hundred percent of the time, you ask someone who's relapsed, "Were you doing what you needed to be doing?" and the answer is no. We're we're not working a program. We're not talking to a sponsor. We're not going to meetings. We're not, you know, doing the deal. And then we're shocked that we're ready to burn our lives down. So it just it oh man it was there was cops everywhere and it was just it was a thing and and it just pisses me off. So um, today, well, I can having having lived in New Jersey and New York, um, I am not offended by profanity <laughs> and the fact that you have a Texas accent that kind of can sort of make it seem kind of feminine and demure. <laughs> it, it sort of just bypasses me. And I was listening to one of your podcasts actually. I said. God, she swears a lot, but you know, I'm not usually offended as I am. Must be kind of that southern <laughs> voice, I guess, that just lulls me into this. Well, that it's does okay. that gives me some assurance. That gives me some assurance. I do want to mention before we get started, today's sponsor is Debbie McCamey, who is a, a a local realtor here in the Central Texas area. Um, Debbie is a is a beautiful friend of mine and a and a fan of the show um, and a supporter of recovery. She hello um, and thank you, Debbie. The roots. That's exactly right. The roots run deep, and so Debbie, I'm so grateful for your friendship and and for your sponsorship of today's show. So Mr. Christopher, today is about you. We're going to talk about you. So this podcast is, you know, to where we can share our experience, strength, and hope with each other because God dog it, I ain't having no more shame around me. I ain't having it. I'm not having it. You know, I I just uh, recorded a show with a gentleman um, that had a, a liver transplant, and he's he's talking about um, he's got some survivor's guilt, you know, and 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 that kind of thing. And man, this disease, it's just it's just something else. So so, 
I'm going to hand things over to you to share your experience, strength, and hope. I've enjoyed so much being friends with you on on Facebook and and well, sharing. Thank you. Sharing I've, en- shares. I've enjoyed our interchanges too. I think I think that we we have a kindred spirit in this recovery thing. So so I want to hear about it. What what was it like? What happened? And what are you like now? You want the short version or hey, the give it all, give it all to me, honey. I'm ready. <laughs> Give it here's, all the to short, me. here's the short version. I drank, I fell down, I came to AA, life got better. There we go. The podcast is over. Amen. 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 <laughs> um, my story is, is like most people, you know, particularly in recovery. Um, <clears throat> I was born to an alcoholic family. Um, I was born in St. Paul, Minnesota. I, you know, my first memory in life happened in this little duplex that we lived in. Um, we lived in a duplex and... <clears throat> I was watching TV with my parents, and my very first memory is this, is that I can't remember to this day, was it a TV program or a commercial, but here's what I recall about that incident, was that we're watching TV, and this little boy went into his bedroom, and he had this beautiful toy box, and he opened up his toy box, and he pulled his toys out, and he's sitting in in this toy box. His mom comes in, and it's this very precious moments sort of scene. She, She picks him up, and she hugs him, and she loves on him, and I thought, I need that. Mm -hmm. And at two and a half years of age, I got up from the living room and I walked into my bedroom. And when I got there, I was pissed off because I didn't have a beautiful toy box. What I had was a cardboard box with a few toys in it. So I pulled, you know, my couple of Tonka trucks out of it and my teddy bear and I don't know, my plastic Fisher Price telephone. And I'm sitting in my cardboard box. And, you know, when you've got toddlers or been around them if they're not making noise they're probably up to something mm-hmm. so eventually my mom came in to check on me and when she came in there were no hugs and no i love yous i was scolded and told to pick up my toys the lesson i chose to take from that was that i'm not loved i'm simply not loved the way that i should be and at two and a half years of age that is my first conscious memory in life i am not loved wow my next deep memory came about a year later. <clears throat> they were putting an interchange for the freeway and a highway through where we lived. And uh, so the neighborhood was going to eventually be condemned. But my mom had gone off grocery shopping and she left us with Pam, who babysit us frequently. And there was a park behind the house. And we'd gone there to play. And while I was there, my friend Johnny showed up and he show, arrived with his brothers. And, you know, his brothers were older than us. And, and when you're six, seven, eight years of age, you do not want to hang out with three and four year olds. And so they played with us for a little bit and they left. And eventually Johnny and I were kind of were off by ourselves playing. And we decided, you know, to play tag. And we wandered across the street, excuse me, to the construction site. And we're watching the bulldozers and the earth movers and the big dump trucks and having a lot of fun running around playing tag like, you know, little boys and kids do. And um, <clears throat> jumping around and just having a great time. It's a beautiful sunny day and we're, we're having a, a blast. And I can remember jumping down the hill and running back up and Johnny jumped down the hill. And this time when he landed, the hillside caved in. And at three and a half years of age, I watched my best friend die in front of me. Oh my word. And the lesson I chose to take from that was that if I love you, you will go away. And so the first two deep memories I have in life is that I'm not loved. And if I love you, you will go away. And so very early in life, I saw it respite and shelter from those ideas, those thoughts and those feelings. Mm. Now, I grew up in an alcoholic home and I grew up in a time where it was perfectly acceptable to say, can I try that? 
And uh, my dad came from, you know, a family with a lot of cat. You know, they were Catholic from the fifties, which means they didn't practice any type of birth right. control. There were a lot of kids. So <laughs> my, you know, my dad's family had seven brothers and sisters. And so when we would get together on his side of the family, there'd be the seven brothers and sisters, seven siblings that or seven spouses. That's 14. Grandma and grandpa is 16 and several other adults. So there's always anywhere from 18 to 22, 24 adults. Right. So, you know, you'd go swimming through the room through the gray haze of purple smoke because everyone smoked cigarettes in the house. Mm -hmm. And they all drank beer and sat around yelling at each other. And you'd go from room to room and you'd ask somebody, can I try that? And eventually they'd either think you know you're so annoying to get rid of you they'd give you the beer to try it or they thought you were so cute they'd give you the beer to try it but either way you, you got, got what you want <laughs> right and when they would hand it to you you know i'd put it up to take a drink but here's the problem is there they reach out so quickly to pull that away from you that you couldn't get very much and i loved the taste so i figured out very quickly that if they did that if i took one giant step back from the table and threw it up to my mouth I could get a lot more in and they'd have to reach a lot farther to pull that away from me. So that's what I would do. So all of my life, I've known, I've loved the taste of beer. Now, shortly, you know, shortly after that incident with, with Johnny, the, the, by the following spring, the, the entire neighborhood was condemned and we all had to move. And at that point, my dad took a transfer and we moved from Minnesota to Southern New Jersey. And we lived in a little town called Cherry Hill, which is directly across the river from Philadelphia. Mm. And despite what you see in movies and hear in comedy skits about what an armpit in a junkyard New Jersey is, it's really, it's a very pretty state. It's called the Garden State, and it's called that for a reason. It's actually a very pretty state. So mm -hmm. I enjoyed living there. Now, we're, we're in this little two-bedroom bungalow house that we lived in. And one day after dinner, uh, sitting in the, in the kitchen, my dad opened the refrigerator. And I saw something there that I had never seen before. On the, on the shelf of the refrigerator was a little bottle, you know, it was about so big, um, pint size roughly, and it was clear. And I asked my dad, what is that? Yeah. Oh, and he dear. said, it's special adult water. Can I try it? And he said, sure. So he gave me a cap full. I drank it. It was nasty. It burned all the way down. And I think when it hit my stomach, I wanted to puke. And it was the worst thing I'd ever tasted. And I got up from the kitchen table to go watch TV in the living room. It was about eight feet in this little bungalow from one room to the other. And when I hit that doorway, that magic happened. Oh, wow. Now, what how old were speak? you? Mm, probably five, six five years six. of age. Okay. So when I hit that doorway, I got this wonderful rush of warmth from the bottom of my feet up to the top of my head. And it straightened my spine. And I felt, you know, a little bit funnier and a whole lot better. And I said, dad, can I try that again? He said, no. But from that moment to the last, to the moment I had my last drink on March 31st of 1990, that is the feeling that I was chasing and I was completely unaware of it. Wow. So That's eventually, so you, know, well. you put that so well. Yeah. So we tra we transferred back. My dad took a transfer about four, a little over four years later, we moved back to Minnesota and I was living in the in the southern Minneapolis suburbs here it was a very rural kind of play area at the time. And uh, I, I was going to school there. And while I, in school in fifth grade, I was in that day was health class, Mr. Peterson's health class. And in the 70s, it was really more about trying to scare you than educate you. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we had watched this film strip. And afterwards, he had talked about um, that alcoholism, he said, they just discovered is an inherited disease. Really? Now for me, yeah, this was in the 1970s. So for me, 
I've had this voice that's talked to me all of my life. It tells me things I intuitively know are true, though I have no idea how or why I know they're true. And in that moment, that voice whispered in my ear and said, that's you, you're an alcoholic. And I knew that it was true. And so from the time that I was 11 years old, I knew that I was or would become an alcoholic. And so, so did you think dream- that about your dad? Did, 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 that, did that click with you or were you just, you see what I mean? No, I, I didn't at, at the time. Okay, got it. Uh, my grandfather what, drank, I mean, from the time he got home from World War II to the day he passed away, he drank a minimum of about a fifth of whiskey every single day except for the times he was in the, you know, locked up or in the hospital or in the nut ward. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I knew what an alcoholic looked like. And I saw other people. I didn't realize about my dad yet. Got it. I, I would later. So, you know, so that was my, my idea. I wanted to control and enjoy my drinking. So I didn't look like the people in my dad's family that I saw. And um, eventually my parents split up and at 16 years old, I moved out oh, and wow. I went to live on, I went to live on a horse ranch. And um, I loved living there. We had a took had 120 horses there. I did trail rides and sleigh rides, and you know, oh, that's veterinary fun. work. And thought it was it was very cathartic. I loved being with the animals and spending time outside. It was it was a fabulous thing. And uh, my senior year, I decided I wanted to try and repair the relationship with my dad. We we were really on the outs. And at this time, he had moved out to the to the beach communities of, of Orange County, California. And so I packed up and I left Minnesota to move out to with my dad for my senior year of high school. And when I left, I left with this thought, this time it's going to be different. When I get out there, no one will know me. I won't be saddled with the things that I have going on here. I can be anything I truly want to be. It's going to be different. And when I got out there, the first month or so, it was great. And then one night I can remember laying in my bed. And getting that kind of, you know, metaphorical knock on, you know, like, mm-hmm. hi, this is your problems. You thought you left in Minnesota. We've missed you the last couple of months. Let's talk for a while. In fact, let's stay up till six o'clock in the morning reminiscing, you know, and there my head is running again with all of these thoughts and all of these emotions and all of the, these problems and things that I thought I had left behind because the move was supposed to solve that. So there's that, there's that saying that in, in recovery, what, what is it? Um, uh, everywhere I go, there I am. There I am, yeah. Yeah. No matter where, no, no matter, no matter where, where you I go, go there I you take are. me with me. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. <laughs> so, um, and th- and that was true. I I wanted to change, but I brought me and what I knew with me. Yeah. And didn't change. And I wound up, you know, I wound up in school. They gave you, they gave you these tests for placement, and they said that I was a couple credits short, but if I would do certain things, I could graduate the following semester. Which I thought, okay, I'll I'll do that. And they also said, you seem to be fairly bright. We have this pilot program where we're sending kids to college simultaneously while they're in high school. And they, they do that a lot today. But in 1984, I was one of the first in the first kind of period to go do that. Yeah. And so I, I went to college and um, my first day of high school, I showed up. It was history class, my, one of my favorite classes. And the teacher pulls the book out and I'm crestfallen. I'm angry because it is the exact same book in as a senior that I had in Minnesota as a freshman. And so I don't know about any of your listeners, but I hate authority. Can't stand being told what to do. Mm-hmm. So even to this day, I can't stand being told what to do. 
But so I went I went up to the principal's office and I demanded that uh, to see the principal or vice principal. She graciously granted me an audience, sat down, and I told her that I've already taken this. And I demanded she call Apple Valley High School in Minnesota and get a copy of their class, their prospectus, and the books that they use and faxed over. And they did. And I showed her, look, it's the exact same book for a history course. I will take any course you want except this one because I've already taken it. And she said, it's one of our requirements. If you want to graduate, you'll take this course. And I said, okay. Now, the inherent in that okay is not that I actually agreed with her. I was say. I'm incredibly <laughs> passive aggressive and I will smile to your face and then I will do that oh, behind gosh. your back. And that's what I did. And I thought, you know, I turned 18 a month after school started. I can legally write my own absences. Mm-hmm. There's not a damn thing you can do about it. So if you're not going to help me, I'll show you I'll hurt me. Right? So brilliant that oh, we are. Man. Oh. And so that's what I did. I just stopped going to the classes I didn't want to go to. And I wrote my notes and either they accepted them or they didn't. And I didn't care. And they told me that when I got, well, that I, that I didn't have to actually graduate, that I was already in college and I could matriculate full time the next, at the end of the year. And so that's what I, that's what I elected to do. And I went off to, and I started college and it was the same thing. More classes with people I didn't want to take, people I didn't want to be with. And I hated it. You know, they told me I had to study algebra and trigonometry and geometry to be a well-rounded person. I know right. I see that eye yeah. roll. Yeah. In the, you know, in the path I took in life, it had no bearing for me. I can talk proof postulates and Pythagorean's theorem and all of these things today, but it had no bearing on my life. Mm-hmm. And in fact, as I con- as I drive over our bridges that seem to be falling down all over the country, you know, I thank the people who studied algebra and geometry and trigonometry, right. <laughs> but it had no bearing in my life. For you, right. For me. And one of the other things they told me to be a really well-educated, well-rounded person was I had to take this art history appreciation course. And I took the course and one day they're showing, you know, they're showing the classics, which I, I like, but they get into more kind of like postmodernism and cubism and some, some different things, which I don't really care for. And then I'll never forget this. They stopped on this picture and it was a picture of a blue Christmas tree that looked like a little kid had finger painted. And the teacher of the course said, imagine how wonderful this little artist must be that they're not boxed and confined in the box of normalcy. And they were able to make a blue Christmas tree rather than a green Christmas tree. My thought at that moment was the little bastard ran out of green finger paint. He painted it blue. There's nothing special about this. I hate this class. I don't want to be here either. Oh, no. And so eventually, shortly after that, I made the decision that I was going to try and go in the world and make my way the old fashioned way. And so I left. And when I left, shortly after that, my dad sat me down in the kitchen at the kitchen table to have one of those father to son chats. that's you know, supposed to kind of get you real excited about life and, and get you going and light a fire under you. But underneath, it sounds like he was really saying, I'm very disappointed in you. Mm, or at least that's what you or, heard. You're a failure. Mm-hmm. That's what I heard. Mm-hmm. But in that conversation, the perception is reality. Me, I mean, yeah, you know, exactly. It is real or not, that is reality. And in that moment, he gave me three options. He said I could join the military and God bless our men and women who have done that. I've always wanted to serve in the military in some capacity, but I've had, but I've had to take medication for asthma and allergies all of my life. So medically I couldn't get in. Right. Even though it was an option, I knew it was not an actual option. 
the next action he gave me was that I can move to Phoenix, Arizona and get involved in a construction company his friend owned. Now, I may not look like it, but I like working outside. I like getting dirty. I like working with my hands. And um, so I thought that sounded interesting, but there was a problem. I grew up in the Midwest. I love four seasons. I particularly love the fall and the early spring when the weather is cooler. There's no way I'm moving to Phoenix, Arizona, where it's over 600 degrees, over 100 degrees, six months out of the year. Yeah. That's not happening. Yeah. So I wasn't going to do that. And then he said, I can move out to Buffalo, New York to get involved in a trucking company that a friend of his was starting. Well, my dad was president of a national trucking company at that time. And from a business standpoint, I really admired my dad. And so I wanted to be just like him. And so that's the option that I picked. And eventually, uh, a week or so later, I, I jumped in my car and I headed on out to New York. So were you were you drinking during this time at all? Um, a, a little bit, uh, you know, you, here and you, there, parties. Can, different but, but what's interesting, and that's so funny to me, Chris, Christopher, is 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 you you can you can see the isms. Oh I, yeah, I see the isms working. Right. You know, and what's what's amazing to me is is I don't have that I don't have that gift of see, looking back that far into my childhood to go aha aha aha. It was just when alcohol beat the shit out of me. Um, that's very very interesting that that you're recognizing these things at such an early age. And to be honest, that I mean I, I've been sober a long time, and when I used to talk about this, I I focus a lot on my drinking and my use, mm -hmm. but that wasn't the problem. Right. The problem was the ism that you're talking about. My mental view of how I, of perception and reality mm -hmm. was so distorted that I had to anesthetize it to get rid of that. So that's what I focus on when I talk about it now. So I'm on my way to New York from California. And as I'm driving eastbound across the country, I had an alcoholic car, you know, one of those yeah, you know, a car that'll take you places you're not intending to go. <laughs> and, uh, so I gotcha. I, I'm, I'm, I'm driving to New York, and when I get to Des Moines, Iowa, I'm supposed to be going east, and my car makes a left-hand turn, and I find myself going north to Minnesota. Oh. And my, my graduating class was 1985, and that's the in Minnesota. That's the year they changed the drinking age from 19 to 21. So they grandfathered my class in. We could legally drink at 19. So I showed up in Minnesota, looked up my friends that I hadn't seen in a year and a half and went out to the very, because we've got a lot of lakes here in Minnesota. So I went to the lakes and the beaches and the parks and bars and we drank for a week and partied and had a great time. I jumped in my car and I headed to New York. And when I got to New York, I called the man I was supposed to call. And he said, well, I wish you would have called before you arrived. We lost the account you're supposed to go to work for and I don't have a job for you. Not only that, I'm leaving town on business for the weekend, so I don't have a place for you to stay. Call me back in 30 minutes. I'll see what I can do. I call him back, and he said a guy named Mike, who worked for him, had an extra room in his apartment, and I could stay with Mike. And so I drove around, and I found a bar, and I stopped there, and I called Mike, and he that's when they still had pay phones in bars, and, you know, mm -hmm. and he came and picked me up, and we went back to, to, his, to his place. And his place was on the west side of Buffalo, which is a very where this was on the west side was a very run down very hard tough blue collar neighborhood and um i didn't really feel like i fit in and i had grandiose visions of what new york would be like and my arrival was nothing like i thought it would be mm. but you know one of the things that happened was that mike became my alcoholic sponsor mm -hmm. so he's the person who really taught me how to drink and use drugs right 
living in New York for a person of my variety, what was beautiful was that the bars opened at 8 a.m. every day and didn't close till 4 a.m. the next day. Oh my gosh. In a clock in, in a true 24-hour period, that's only two hours, but in a clock 24-hour period, it's four hours. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's like standing outside in a storm where you know it's gray and the clouds are overcast and you can't see anything. And all of a sudden you get that momentary break and the and those beautiful streams of sunlight come down and you can see them coming down. And that's what it was like. And it was almost like you know, the heavens opened up and you could hear the angels singing from on high, going, Oh, and I thought, <laughs> I'm in heaven. Know- because I've you arrived. know relief is on its way. Exactly. And, um, you know, and, and one of the things that happened while I was in New York was that I discovered cocaine. And I want to be very clear with everybody. I didn't actually discover cocaine because if I had, I'd be fabulously wealthy today. That's and my right. life would be very different. But I found out about it. And I found out that if you did a little bit of this magic white substance early in the day, you could drink really late into the evening and go home and jump in bed and sleep really fast and get up the next day and go to work. And you're just fine, fine, fine. I'm fine, fine, fine. Oh my gosh. You know, I loved that feeling of going 150 so miles around jo- with my hair on fire. I thought it was the my, greatest uh, feeling in the world. Then? Recording stuff. Eventually, yeah, I did get a job. And eventually by the time I was 20 years of oh, age, okay. Mike and I okay. broke away from gotcha. them and formed, and formed our own business. And, uh, so, you know, I compare it to like being being a passenger on the Titanic when I combine those two. It's originally like having, having you know, your cabin mm-hmm. down at the bottom of, of the in steerage where you can't see anything and somebody inviting you up to sit on the, on the top right. penthouse. Right. You've got a beautiful view, but you're going down no matter what. Mm-hmm. And really, and that's the way that it was. And um, eventually I was physically removed from my office. I was asked to never return again, and I lost everything that I valued. And uh, I wound up, uh, I wound up at a weekly rental motel, and I got a job from uh, uh, this guy new, uh, opened up a new company and offered me a job working commission. And I was only making two hundred and fifty dollars a week on commission because he couldn't offer me a full time, full time job, and they didn't have enough work. But it was. So I took the job oh, wow. and it cost me two hundred dollars a week yeah. to rent this motel. Didn't leave you much spending money, which did means it? that I had fifty dollars a week, you know, left. No, no. So we did grocery warehousing. So in out in the back of the, of the warehouse, we had overstocks and damages. So what I would do is I would go out and I would steal dented cans of high C and partially torn Snickers bars and you know I don't know almond joys or whatever, and that's what I would eat. Mm. So that I had enough money to go out and drink on the weekends with my friends. And as crazy as that sounds to anybody, it made perfect sense. At you, the had time. A great, you had a great system going. <clears throat> and um, eventually, uh, yeah. And eventually, you know, every Friday would come and my rent was due at the hotel. And I'd get paid every Friday from work from this job. And so I had the money, but I couldn't. I couldn't stand where I was and face who I was. And I, I just couldn't go pay him. And I would go and I would go into the little bungalow I was staying in. And Saturday morning, that phone without, without fail would ring between nine thirty and 10 o'clock. And as it rang, I was just laying there looking at the phone thinking, please just leave me alone. I'm trying to do the best that I can. I promise I will pay you. Just leave me alone. And that phone would ring four or five times on Saturday. The same thing happened on Sunday. Monday morning would come, I'd get up, a friend of mine would pick me up and take me to work, and uh, 
And Monday evening, I'd get home and I'd go up and, and write him a check, always with some excuse of why I couldn't show up and be responsible on Friday. And here's the thing. They lived <laughs> there. They owned it. They could see me in and out of out of the bungalow out back, you know. So why it is that I felt I had to lie to him and tell him a story? Well, I couldn't face what I was. I had to make it. So I had to make it seem reasonable. And eventually they had all the fun that they could stand. And they said, mm, we, we've had enough. You know, you, you need to leave. And um, so I start couch surfing. And eventually oh, yeah. I wind up back at Rick's house. He's the man who had brought me out to Buffalo four years earlier. And one day while I'm sitting there watching TV in the living room late afternoon, he came to me and said, you know, you've lost everything. You have nothing left here. Your dad has just gotten out of treatment in California. I think you should go back to California. Okay, wait, wait, and wait, I wait, said, wait, wait. Flag on the plate. Okay, on the I'll plate. go. Out of, out of treatment? No, he asked me. So did you know he had gone to treatment? My dad, yeah. Really? Okay. Okay, so he was Yes, I, I was aware of that. Oh. Yeah. It, no. Okay. He was he was seeking job security. <laughs> his, oh, his job gave him an ultimatum gotcha. to go to recovery or lose gotcha, his job, gotcha, and gotcha. so he went. So he so he he went he went to treatment. Um. So I I made it. This, so Rick told me that I should leave, and um, that day was March seventeenth, St. Patrick's Day. Now. When you're when you know mm -hmm. when you're a normie or a drunk, St. Patrick's Day is the day you have to drink. And so I said, "Well, that's fine. I'll leave tomorrow. Today's St. Patrick's Day. My friends are all going out. I'd like to go out with them. You know, I'll say goodbye to them and I'll head off to Southern sunny California and leave them here in the snow in Buffalo." And he looked at me and said, "I think you'll go now." And there was something very definitive oh, wow. in the way that he said now that I knew there'd be no arguing the point. So I said, okay. And uh, we went in the back to uh, to the spare room that he had back there. And he had a green army duffel bag that he kept some hockey equipment in. And so we dumped out this old hockey equipment. I packed what I could in this little army duffel bag. And I had a duffel bag that I played hockey with. So I dumped my stuff out and put some stuff in there. And he took me down to the Greyhound bus station. He bought me a ticket and he gave me $100. And he said, you'll be on this bus for the next four days. Please wow. make sure you eat something and don't spend it all in one place. So within a couple of hours, the bus departed Buffalo, New York, and we headed out. And our first stop was about four hours later in Cleveland, Ohio. And while I'm sitting in the terminal in Cleveland, you know, I'm thinking about my life and how I'd gotten from where I was certain that I was going to walk this road. See, I had already, by the time I was 21 years of age, I already had two patents. And I was certain that I was on the road destined to be a millionaire before I was 30. And now here I am riding on public transportation on a Greyhound across the country with, you know, what I deemed the dregs of society. And I was thinking, how am I going to explain this, this story to them? Now, here's the goofy thing. Only an alcoholic who couldn't actually pay for his own ticket <laughs> so would look down on the people who paid bus? for their how own ticket. How old are you ticket. sitting on that bus? 20, okay, I was going to say 24, 20, yeah, okay, 23. Uh, 23. So, uh, anyhow, I'm looking around, and, and I see the uh -huh. guy, you know. The, you know who I'm talking about when I mentioned the guy. You, know, you, can, you can put me in a room with 100 people. They can all look identical. 99 of them can be upstanding Mormons, and that one's a degenerate, yep. and I'll pick out that yep. degenerate every single time. 
and and I start talking to him, and he's telling me, you know, some different things that really make this kind of an, an interesting bus ride. And, um, you know, he told me he had some alcohol, and I thought, well, they have rules on these buses. You can't sit in the back of the bus and drink beer because they'll kick you out somewhere like Omaha, Nebraska. And so then I'd have to call my That's dad, who just got out of treatment, and say, hey, Dad, I got kicked off the bus for getting drunk, and you yeah, right. can you buy me a plane ticket to come home? I knew that would not go over well. And, um, you know, he mentioned he had, you know, some 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 dope, and I thought the same thing. You can't sit in the back of the bus mm-hmm. and smoke dope because they'll kick you out in a little town like Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Hey, Dad, you know, can you get me a taxi to the airport and fly me home? Again, I knew that would not go over well. So we looked at each other for, for what was a moment, but it, it felt like an eternity. And he said, well, I do have some acid. So I thought, okay. So I bought two posted stamps of acid from this guy. And he said that they're they're very strong. Take a quarter to half of one tablet. Now, I've taken medication all of my mm-hmm. life. So I'm very good at following the directions on how to take oh. my drugs. And I probably swallowed both tablets. Oh, dear. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> so, oh, dear. So, uh Let's just say it was oh, a very interesting no. bus ride, both in my mind and on the bus. And uh, and uh, a little over a day later, we wind up in Kansas City. And when I walk into the terminal at Kansas City, just not in my right frame of mind, I walk in and I sit down by the vending machines, and I'm looking around the terminal, and over off to my right, I see this guy sitting I there. Do. He's a cowboy, I do. I you do. Know, a real cowboy. You're from yep. Texas. You understand real cowboy. Hat. I saw, you know, he's got on the hat and the long duster and the boots, and there's even a saddle sitting next to him. And well, I say he was a real cowboy. I don't know <laughs> that he was real, but in that moment, in my mind, he was. But so he gets up and he walks over to the vending machines, just sitting right, right next to me. And as he walked past me, Jesus Christ popped out of his chest with his arms open like he was welcoming me to hug oh. me. And I thought, wow, that is really strange. And, but I knew something was happening beyond that experience that was being induced in my mind. And I thought about that for the next two and a half days as we rode out to California. And when I got to California, I didn't have the courage and conviction to call my dad to have him come and pick me up. So I called his secretary and she picked me up and took me to my dad's house. You know, and despite what a lot of people see in, in, on TV mm-hmm. and in movies, most houses in California are not really that big. And, um, you know, the driveways are only about 30 feet long. And as I stood at the bottom of that driveway, getting my, my two duffel bags out of the back of her car, looking up at that house, I felt just like I did when I was a little boy sitting in one room and my dad would holler from the other room and he'd go, come here. Mm-hmm. And I knew I mm-hmm. had to get up and walk to that other room to take that beating one more time. Oh, wow. And that's the way that it felt looking at that house. And I walk up to the door and I knocked on the door. And my dad opened the door. He asked me, what are you doing here? Kind of surprised. I knew he knew I was coming. And he brought me into the house and he sat me down at the kitchen table. And he said, I want to talk to you about a couple of things. He said, I know what you've been doing in New York for the last four plus years. And and I don't approve. And uh, I'm going to tell you something else. He said, you are my son. And I love you. But I do not like you or anything about you. I will not help you in any way except for this. I will take you down to the bottom of the hill. I will give you enough money to take it to the Santa Ana mission. You are an effing bum. Go live with them. Get out. 
you know, I, I, I grew up Catholic and every year, right around springtime, they, you know, the Catholics tell the story of the prodigal son. And for those who don't know what it is, I'll tell you, it's a story about a young man who decided, you know, he wanted to make his way in life and he left his father and he went off and years, never, you know, no contact. And one night he's sleeping in the pen with the pigs and the slop and the cramp and the cold and thought if he just could go home and get a, a job as a servant mm-hmm. in his father's house, that at least he could be warm and be fed. And when he shows up at the house, after being gone for so many years, mm-hmm. his father missed him so much that he welcomed him home with loving arms. And there was no, and was there was no party the thrown in your honor. Having. You know? Mm-hmm. No party thrown in my honor. And, you know, and, and, you know, I wanted a little bit of praise. I mean, you know, I, I, I had owned my own business. I had two patents to my name that, that I was certain would, you know, would help the transportation industry. And, um, but that didn't happen. I just heard the word get out echoing in my head. And my, my sister is a year younger than I am. And she lived within a half hour of my dad and came and picked me up and said I could stay at her place. And she happened to be the head waitress at this local bar. And so I went and stayed with her, and I went after and sat in this bar for the next week, wondering, commiserating my life, thinking, what do I, what should I do? How do I, how do I change my circumstances? And I figured that if I could just get my dad to give me enough money to go back to New York, I could, you know, I, I could get my car out of hock, I, I could start my own business, and and start over again. And so that was my plan. And so I walked up to the bar. It was eleven forty-five. I ordered a double VO and seven because that's what I really like. I slammed it down very quickly and walked out the door with, with that thought that I'd had a thousand times before that tomorrow will be a new day. And I, and I went home and I woke up the next day, which was April 1st, April fool's day. And I started thinking, scheming really. And I thought if I can just, you know, if my dad will just believe this, but how do I get him to believe this? Cause he, he'll never believe I'm doing this on my own. And so I made a decision that I would go to because he had just got out of treatment. And I knew that, you know, they gave him the, the, the book. of, And I knew that if I, if I went to the meetings that they would tell me things. And so when my dad wanted to see how I'm doing yeah. this, he, I could parrot could those answers lingo. back to him. And mm-hmm. he would actually believe mm-hmm. that I'm doing the work. Right. Right. So I, I could, I could snow him. I could pull one over on him. So, April 1st, that was supposed to be, you know, I figured I'd stay sober on sheer hate and willpower for three to six months. He'd say, you really have changed. I'll help you out this one last time. And I'd go back to New York and pick up my life. And so that's what I did. So I chose my date of April Fool's Day to be a joke, but it turned out to be the joke on me, I guess, 33 years later. So, so I started going and when I got, when I got to, I was 23 years old. You know, and in 1990, there were not a lot of young people in in recovery. And those that came did not stay. And so, you know, people didn't figure I would stay and and they'd call me anything but my name. Um, Kid was what I usually got. And, um, you know, at 23, when you're sitting in a room full of people who are in their 40s, 50s and 60s, they all look really old. And, and, you know, now that I'm in my my late 50s, Oh, I don't sure. think so anymore, but I couldn't identify with them. They, you know, they were talking about losing their spouse. I'd never been married. I'd never had a relationship that lasted longer than 60 days. So I didn't know what that was like. 
they talked about, you know, losing their family and their friends or, or their children. I mean, uh, I never, I was never married. I didn't, I didn't have a spouse. I, I didn't have children. So I, I couldn't, it didn't resonate. I, I couldn't make sense of it. They talked about losing their home. I never owned a home at that point. So I didn't know what that was like. And, you know, they talk about losing, losing their job. Well, I didn't actually lose my job. It was stolen from me. No, so I, I, I couldn't that, that, that laughter that's, that's is, is yeah, confirmation so, you know, that I know it, exactly what you're <laughs> We didn't lose anything. No, no, no. I, 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 get, I get the laughter. Trust me. I'm laughing myself. Right. So, right. So I can't identify with anything they're talking about. And then one day, somebody looked at me and said, kids, mm, I love listen that. to the similarities. I love that. Say that again. Say that again. And I, isn't that what, isn't that what we do though? Not the we, differences. We, we harp on the differences because I, I think that if yeah. you're like me, you're going to be better. What the sure. actual hell? Yeah. So I started, so I, I continued going to meetings and I started to try and listen to the similarities. And as I began to listen, I heard people starting to talk about, you know, that knot on the bottom of your stomach, that mm-hmm. pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization that you feel. And, and they would talk about, you know, feeling like they were something that somebody stepped out in the grass as you were trying to scrape off the bottom of your shoe. And I knew how that felt. And they would talk about walking into a closed room that momentarily before had been silent. And when they opened the door, they heard laughter. Right. And somehow they intuitively knew that everyone was laughing at them. And that's the way that I felt. And I understood that. And then I heard somebody tell me one day, he said, you know, when you're sitting there all by yourself and you have that big hole in the middle of your gut that feels like a cold winter wind is blowing through it, that absolutely nothing can fill. Mm. I understand that feeling because I've walked a mile in your shoes. And at that moment, I knew for the first time in my life. I wanted to, I, I wanted to ask truth. you. Oh, yeah, sorry All to interrupt, but you, you're saying so, such good no, things because yeah. I I can't remember which which episode no, it was ahead. that I was talking about. When was the first time in your life you felt like you belonged? You know, and that that word belonged. You know, it's it's so profound when you really yeah. think about the meaning of it. It's like I deserve, I need, and everyone else here is okay with me being here and and they don't mind me it's it's like i belong here and the first time i ever felt that way was when i sat in a in a room of recovery with with other people that are similar you know with the same disease it, it just there's oh it's profound sure yeah so i i'm i hear i hear these words and i know he's telling me the truth and i started to look at the people in the rooms and then I began to look at their eyes when they were speaking. And there was something in their eyes that I desperately wanted. And I made a decision at that point that I would not mm-hmm. leave until I felt I had what they had. And I continued and I started going to, going to meetings and working the steps and doing all of those things. You know, and, and when you're new, I mean, I know, you know, you hear in the rooms all the time, you hear that saying, and, that, and I hate this saying, you know, you've got to do it for the right reasons. Yeah. Well, what the hell are the right reasons? Right? Everybody kind of make, makes a passing mm-hmm. reference to them, but nobody really tells you what they actually are. Like you're supposed to have, you know, some great wisdom, and, and I've just decided my life's a wreck, and I really need to change and get better for myself. I don't know right. anybody that got to recovery 
through the right reasons. Nobody I nobody yeah, I know or, woke or up the, and said, the, Hey, my life or, is or going great. I think I'll go to, to AA. This disease of addiction or, or, is or treatment. Too, da, 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 da. Yeah, it didn't. Honey, I crawled in on my hands and knees. I crawled in with my hands and knees. Right. Everybody I Yeah. Mm-hmm. Everybody I know that got here got here through consequences. Consequences of losing their job, losing their home, losing their family, losing mm-hmm. their job, losing their health, losing right. their life, losing their freedom. Something drove them here. Mm-hmm. We all, I think we all got here with dishonest motives. But as we stay and do the work, the reason for that we stay and our motives begin to change. So I, I hate it. that saying, yeah, do it for the right man, reasons. Do I don't it. care what your reasons are. Just do it. Yeah, exactly. So so I started doing it, and I walk in, you know, and one one of my things was that I walk in a very broken, dejected young man with a lot of with a lot of problems. And um, one of my big issues was, you know, the the the, the abuses in my family that happened to me as a child. And while I'm sitting in the meeting and I'm listening to people talk, and one of the things they're talking about is, particularly in the fourth step. And they look at me and they tell me, I need to look mm-hmm. at my parts to get past my anger. Now, you hear that all the time in meetings. People will tell you, you need to look for your parts. You need to look for your parts. Well, let me give you some background on how this looks, because this was the most important thing in my sobriety that changed everything. So um, my dad grew up in an alcoholic family with, with a lot of physical abuse. And one day when my dad was about six years of age, he forgot to give the dog fresh water. And so the next day to teach him a lesson, my grandfather took my dad and he brought him outside and he took him into the garage. And he took a swing set chain mm-hmm. and he bolted it to my dad's ankle and he took him out and he chained him to a tree. And then he said he had to stay there for the next three days without food or water wow. so we'd understand how a dog feels and that he would never do that again. Now, while my dad's out chained to the tree here in the summertime, you know, uh, he can't go anywhere. And kids would come by, he lived in a little small town, and kids would come down the alleyways and see my dad in the backyard, and they'd say, come and play, come and play. You know, and my dad couldn't go anywhere. And eventually they figure out that he's chained to this tree and they can't go anywhere. And so kids, being mm-hmm. what kids are, sometimes they do things they, that are mean and they don't understand the, you know, the ramifications. They went and stood on the other side of the alleyway. And they picked up rocks. And they began pelting my dad with rocks. And eventually my dad gets up to protect himself and he runs out and, you know, he hits the end of that chain and he falls on his face, just like a dog. And those are the types of experiences that my dad brought into his life. Now, when we moved from Minnesota to New Jersey, um, the following spring uh, was a Saturday and my mom would go grocery shopping every Saturday and she usually took us with. But this particular Saturday, she left us at home with my dad, and he was in the kitchen paying bills. And my sister and I asked if we could go outside and play. This was was spring. You know, there's still some snow on the ground and stuff. And my dad said, yes, just don't get wet. Now, I understand that me and my clothes are supposed to stay dry. So growing up in, in, in the snow, I knew what I was supposed to do. So I put on my snow pants, my jacket, my boot, my hat, my mittens, that type of thing, the things that keep you warm and dry. And I went out and I played with my sister. And we, you know, my snow pants are wet, but my clothes are dry. I come in through the kitchen door and I start, uh, I start getting undressed. And my dad looks up from the kitchen table and he screams, he told, says, I told you little not to get wet, didn't I? And he jumped up and he grabbed me and he slapped me four or five times across the face and body slammed me on the kitchen floor. 
And as I banged my head off the floor and I peed my pants one more time, I'm thinking, what did I do? I'm dry. Why do you treat me this way? And I am absolutely terrified. And I have dozens and dozens of experiences like that in my life. And I come into Alcoholics Anonymous and people are telling me I need to look for my part to get past my anger. Well, what was my part? Yeah, see, I couldn't find one either. So here's what I did. With a wink and a nod, I said, Dad, I'll be the bigger man and I will forgive you. That is not forgiveness. There's a, there's a series on YouTube, you know, um, it, it's, it's actually pardoning is what it is, but there, there's a series on YouTube and I cannot remember the guy's name off the top of my head. I do apologize for that. But in this series, he said that um, he wanted to study Aramaic. Aramaic is a form of Hebrew. It's the language they spoke during the time of historical Jesus. And he said he wanted to study Aramaic so that he could read the original teachings and writings in the original language. Because sometimes when you transfer from one society to another with language, you don't get the same meaning because of cultural differences. And he said, this is him reporting this, he said that in Aramaic, the word forgive literally meant to change your mind, to see it differently. When it was translated to Greek, which was what was handed down to us, it came out to pardon. Like an illegal pardon, it is saying, you are still guilty, but we're going to sort of look the other way. See, that's very different than seeing it differently. And so I pardoned him. And what happened was, I stayed angry with him. I continued to hate him long into sobriety. And it affected every area of my life. I couldn't keep a job because I hated all my bosses. They all reminded me of my dad. And, and I had conflict and hate my dad. So I would have conflict with my bosses. Mm-hmm. And roughly about every 12 to 14 months, I'd get fired. You know, everything is falling apart. And, um, and, and then at, at 20 years sober, I come home one day and I have this, I had this beautiful home that, you know, I love old houses. So I have this old home that was built in 1907, which is just a few blocks out my front door to, to the, to the East beach of Lake Calhoun here in Minneapolis. And, um, and I come home and the woman that I'm supposed to marry, she's gone. Our one-year-old son is gone. Her two daughters oh who were like goodness. my own children was gone. The dog, the dishes, the furniture, it's all gone. And I'm sitting there in this house. And I can hear some people walking by outside, the windows partially open. And I had done a lot of work recovering little gardens and stuff in, the, in this home. And um, I heard them say, you know, how much that house had changed and that the people who live there must really have everything they've ever wanted in life. And in that moment, it was a perfect reflection of my life. From the outside looking in, it looked like I had everything I ever wanted. But just like the inside of that house, I was completely empty inside. And I'd stopped going to AA for a couple of years due to uh, some issues I had not related with AA at all. I was dating a, a woman and her ex-husband plotted my murder and it was a horrible scene. And I, and I got really pissed off and I just decided mm-hmm. I quit going to AA because I developed another resentment to God. And um, in that moment, I, d- I said, you know, God, if you can just get me back to AA and I can do what they asked me to do, I, I can change my life. And so I, I wound up at, at 20 to 18 in Minneapolis, which is um, one of the oldest. It's, it's, one of the, it's the oldest continuously run Alano in one location mm-hmm. in the world. It's like the third oldest Alano club in, in the world. Um, so 
I wound up there and, and I'm going to some meetings and in this one meeting I'm at, this guy named Dave comes up and he starts talking to me yep. and every, every club has got a guy like Dave. You know, he's, a, he's an older guy with, with gray hair that smokes three packs of cigarettes a day. He's got a really gruff sounding voice. You never see him smile. And he looks at me in this really gruff voice and he says, you need to go to, you need to go to this four step workshop to get past your anger. And I thought, you miserable old prick, maybe you should go yourself. So so you went. I wind up in in this workshop and and the... I, I did. I, 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 was des- I was desperate, so I went. And I'm, I'm sitting in the workshop, and this guy named Rick, who was running the workshop, he was talking about his life. And he said that if people looking in on his life from their outside perspectives, if they could see from their smaller perspective what he could see about his own life from him, his larger perspective, they would see that things aren't happening like they think they are. And in that moment, that voice said to me, mm-hmm. your life is not happening like you think it is. I had never considered that before. All of the times that I told people all of the stories about how my dad treated me and all of the things that happened in my life, right. everyone told me I was right to feel the way that I did, that I had, in quotes, justified anger, and that it, that it was okay. But yet it's killing me. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, I can't, you know, I hate my life and I want to die. And I decided to try and write inventory, which is the fourth step in recovery, exactly the way that it is in the big book. of. There's, there's sheets out there you'll see with check boxes on them and all kinds of other things to try and help you. And, and I did all of those. And I never found true relief. But when I did it specifically by the instructions that are listed in the in the big book of it completely changed my life in 15 minutes of writing. And I wasn't going to ask God for help. I, I, I hated God. Mm-hmm. I was so angry at that point. There's no way I'm asking him for help. I literally, I literally said, this is killing me. I need to see this differently. And, and I wrote it out. And in the inventory process, it played out in the 12 steps. You know, the first column is who we're mad at. I'm angry at my dad. The second column is, you know, the cause, the story. Why am I angry? Well, I, I gave you a longer, you know, longer description of right. what that looked right. like. But the, the real thing is that, you know, he beat me. He mistreated me. And Everything. and in the third column, you know, how did that affect my life? It affected every area. It affected, it affected my self-esteem, how I viewed myself and wanted others to view me. It affected my ambitions. Ambitions are goals. I had a goal to be a successful band, to have a family, the picket fence, the American dream. You know, it affected my 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 security. You know, in in the book of security is only around jobs right. and finances. It can be emotional, but that's not the way that it's written. Well, I thought I I couldn't keep a job, so I had no security. Everything. And it affected yep. my personal and sex relations. So it's affecting everything in my life. Yeah. And so I said, this is killing me. I need to see this differently. And I turned the page over and I asked the three questions that it asked. Where was I selfish? In other words, not, not acting without concern for him. Where was I dishonest? Because dishonesty right. takes many forms. It's not necessarily just cash register mm-hmm. honesty. You know, ma- manipulation is dishonest. And I would tell my dad stories to manipulate him to give me money so that I could, you know, bail myself out. I, I had no integrity. Right. I couldn't ask him to borrow the money because if I did that, I have to pay it back. But if I could manipulate him, 
saying, Dad, you ruined my life, he'd give me the money. You know, and then the last question is, where were we self-seeking and dishonest? In other words, where was I afraid I wouldn't get what I want? So I started doing something to them first. You know, so I would slam him and do all these things. And pretty soon as I start writing this through the entire relationship, not just the things that I'm angry at, all of a sudden I have this, I start getting this really long list of how I had mistreated my dad. Mm. You know, and on the bottom of page 66 in a big book, here's what it says. It says, the people who wronged us were perhaps spiritually sick. Mm. Now, if you've been raped, molested, beaten, or had something god-awful happen to you, that almost sounds really offensive. Like somehow we're going to forgive But it doesn't crappy. make it any less true. It, no. That doesn't make it any less true. Be, be fucking offended all you want. The truth is the huh? truth, and it doesn't make it any less true that those people were, were sp- spiritually void as well. Right. But but when you but when you haven't found any relief yet, that doesn't matter to you. You know, you're right. violent. You want to you want to lash out and hurt these people. Right. So so that's the way that I felt. But the next thing that it says on the top of page sixty seven is absolutely beautiful. And here's what it says. It says, though we did not like their symptoms and the way these disturbed us, they, like ourselves, were sick too. Mm-hmm. Now, I had read that a hundred times, and I had missed that. But in that moment of desperation by myself, I heard that. Now, this is not about saying what my dad did to me is okay, because it absolutely is not okay. But it is about saying, had he been in his loving and right spiritual mind, there's no way he could have treated another human being right. that way, much less his own child. Right. Well, and I got to tell you, I I, I I experienced the same. You know, I, I was molested as a child. Um um, and, and it's when I, when I worked the steps and, and got to four, you know, it was like, I, I, I had a mate, hell, I had a major resentment towards a sponsor that would even ask, you know, that would even yeah. insinuate that I could have anything to write in the, what was my part section? Are you freaking kidding me? But so, but finally, I think I, I, I was grandstanding so much that she said that, that, you know, that, that time in your life is not yours to continue to carry here you are uh you know in your shit i was late 30s early 40s and you're still carrying it around sometimes using it as a whoopee you know a a security blanket Mm -hmm. sometimes using it as a battering ram sometimes you you're carrying it you know and, and and there was a huge resentment towards my mom that, that, you know, I think in my child mind, you know, um, she allowed it to happen. And, and, and that's where, you know, I was able to, it, it is a change of thinking because I was told, yeah. I was, you know, did she possibly do the best she could with what she had in that moment? If you're going to have some type, do you, if you're going to have any type of compassion, you can't just look at your shit. You know, you have to look at what what could they have possibly gone through themselves that that enabled them to act out and behave in such a way. Sure, but you know that, and I don't necessarily disagree with that either. But that that's that's a very psychological process. But in recovery, in the twelve, yeah, it's a little further down the road. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah. It, you know, it's it's a spiritual thing. So mm-hmm. we're not we're not doing that, and you know, so. In that moment, when I had that, when I had that revelation, I realized, you know what, I'm an alcoholic and an addict. 
I constantly am, am asking for forgiveness. And if my problem is that I'm spiritually sick and I need love and compassion and forgiveness, my dad's an alcoholic. He grew up in a, in a physically abusive home. Mm-hmm. Maybe he's not the monster I think that he is. And in that moment, all of that hate, all of that anger, all of that resentment, that big ball that I'd carried for 45 years blew out of my life and has never come back. Wow. You know, and people talk about, you know, our part, but the book doesn't say our part. And on page 67 in the fourth column, it says, putting out of our minds the wrongs others had done, we resolutely look for our own mistakes. Mm-hmm. And then two sentences later, it says, you know, disregard the other person involved entirely. So this isn't just semantics. There is no apart. Right. If, I, if I'm going looking at a part, I'm assuming somebody else has a part and therefore a part of the blame. Right. So often I continue to justify what I did by what they did, and I stay resentful and angry, and I don't actually find forgiveness. Mm-hmm. So that's why we're not looking for a part. We're looking for where only I made mistakes in the entire relationship. Right. Because that's easy to change. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I did that, and all of a sudden I saw that, and I felt this relief. And some miraculous things happened as a result of doing that that I never would have contended or expected. <clears throat> as a result of healing that relationship with my dad, I healed the relationship with every boss I've ever had because I no longer hate them because they all remind me of my dad. Right. The wow. job I'm working at, the job I'm working at now, I've been there for over six years. That is the longest I have worked anywhere in my entire life. And I genuinely like the people and they like me. I look forward to going to work every day. As a result of healing that that stuff with my dad, I healed the relationship between my dad and his grandson because the man I hated with every fiber of my being, there was no way I would have let him spend time alone with his grandchild. Mm -hmm. And about nine years ago, my dad gave my son a set of electric trains for Christmas just like he did for me when I was little. Oh, wow. And I gave them the gift of being able to go downstairs and play with those electric trains by themselves like I did when I was little. So did he stay sober? No. Oh, he didn't. Okay. Nope. Um, you know, in healing that relationship with my dad, I got a new childhood through my son's eyes every time that I was with him. Right. Because I, I had healed some things. And, you know, and my son, when he was little, was a real daddy's boy. And he'd be playing games on my phone or on his, tablet or whatever and he'd stop and he'd go dad i like you you're a really good dad wow i love you forever all the way to the moon and back right dad yeah why because i took a story that i was certain that i was right about that everyone told me i was right about and i said this is killing me i need to see this differently mm-hmm And literally within 15 minutes of writing, I had a phenomenal shift of perception spiritually that changed my entire life. And a few other things happened that are going to blow your socks off here. So as a result, you know, of doing that one today, when I look in the mirror, the man looking back at me from the other side of that glass no longer hates me with every fiber of his being because he knows who and what I am. Right. I've made peace with the man in the mirror and I'm in complete comfort and ease in my own skin today. And I no longer want to rip it off because I am so uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. 
you know, how did that happen? As a result of doing that work with my dad here about nine years ago, he gave me a card. And in this birthday card, he wrote, I am very proud of you. I am proud of the son that you are, the man that you have become, and the father that you are to your son. I love you. And in that moment, I had searched for, you know, 45 or 50 years for that man to say those words to me. And while I was out there hammering on and hating him, I never got them. And when I healed upwards in a spiritual direction, I no longer needed validation out in a worldly direction. Mm -hmm. It was nice to finally hear that, but I no longer found that I needed it. Right. And then in, a, in about 2013, my dad was diagnosed with COPD. Um, and every winter up here in Minnesota, it gets very cold, so he would get bronchitis. And um, he decided he didn't want to live where he was living anymore. And he came to talk to me. And um, in 2015, he and I bought a house together. Oh, wow. And my dad came to live with me. You know, how did that happen? Mm. I never thought that would happen. You know, in 2016, my dad got very sick with with uh, with the bronchitis and the COPD, and he wound up in the hospital and he nearly died. And the doctors were telling us, you know, the, the X-rays are clear, with the exception of the COPD, of the bronchitis, and you know, they were giving him, going to give him some medication and send him home. And I caught the doctor in the hallway, and I said, "Well, let me tell you the rest of the story that you don't have." And I've studied med, I've studied cancer medicine. And uh, I asked him for a CT and an MRI, and he agreed. And on December 23rd, they came to us, and they told us that my dad had stage 4 lung and liver cancer. Oh, wow. And they, re they deemed him hopeless and recommended no course of treatment and said he might have six months to live, but if he got another cold like that that he had currently, that he probably would pass away in less than a month. And um, we decided that we would try anyway. And so in January of 2017 my dad embarked on 18 rounds of chemotherapy and i got to go to every one of his chemo appointments from a place of love rather than some obligatory sense of duty because i'm his oldest child and his only son that you'd be dragging behind all kinds of resentments had that happened yeah goodness mm -hmm. yeah and you know and in those moments that should have been you know somber and sad we had joy and laughter and love and a miracle happened he got better. Wow. In August of 2018, the cancer came back a second time. And he went through another 18 rounds of chemotherapy, and he got better. And in August of 2019, it came back for a third time. And he started chemo again, and the tumor started to shrink. But this time, he wasn't physically up to the challenge. Mm. And he wound up in a hospital, and he was having memory issues and different things going on. And on October 22nd of 2019, well, we placed we we placed him into a hospice facility and terminated all courses of treatment. And that day that he went there, he was having a really good day that day. He was very lucid. Things were he was very jovial. My dad, my dad loved to joke and, and make other people feel good. And and that's the way that he was that day when he went in. And you know, we were talking. We each had to to meet with the counselors and therapists and, and the nuns and nursing staff and. I, it was my turn to meet with them individually, and we were talking, and I mentioned, yeah, he's having a really good day today and, and seems very jovial, and everyone likes him. I said, but here's what's going to happen. is after Thursday, he is going to drop off very, very quickly. And the, the head nurse looked at me very puzzled, and she said, well, 
Thursday is extremely specific. Why Thursday? And I said, because Thursday is my birthday, and there's no way he'll leave this earth before he gets one last chance to spend it with me again. Mm. And I got to go up and spend my birthday with him, and I brought some cupcakes up there. And um, he, he cried holding my hand, and he told me that, you know, he apologized and said that he was sorry for ruining my birthday. Oh. And in that moment, I was able to truly look at him and say, Dad, there's nowhere I'd rather spend my birthday than right here with you in this moment right now. And in that conversation, he started to open up and he told me some things. And one of the things that he told me was that growing up Catholic, you know, he believed in hell and he believed that the, for the way that he had treated me, that he was going to be, that he would be condemned to hell. And I was able to look at him and say, dad, you are not a perfect father. You did a lot of crappy things, but you did a lot of good things too. Mm -hmm. You provided me a home, meals, clothing, morals. In fact, some of the best things about me today, I learned from you. You are not a bad man. You are not going to hell. And I was able to give him some, a little bit of relief and a little bit of, find a little bit of forgiveness for himself in that moment that, you know, he had that soul-crushing end to his coming to his life and was facing his maker. Right. And a couple of days later, it was a Sunday. My dad loved, loved baseball, and we were watching the World Series together. He fell asleep, and it was about 10, 15, and I needed to go home and do some laundry for work. And <clears throat> I was holding his hand, and I kissed his forehead, and I said, Dad, I've got to go do some laundry, and I, I need to go home. I'll see you tomorrow. And, um, you know, I, I said, I love you. And he opened his eyes and looked at me and squeezed my hand, and he said, I love you too. And those were the very last words I ever heard from my dad. Mm. Two days, then the next day, he fell into a coma, and um, then two days later, on October 30th, he passed away. But what absolute joy that I had been given the last three of years of his life. The man that I had hated with every fiber of my being, mm -hmm. I was able to take care of him and find complete joy and peace in those moments. And while I would have wished for a different outcome, there is nothing about that three years that I would change to this day. It's a blessing. You know, it's a blessing. It was an, was an absolute blessing. You know, and, and as a result of doing that, some other things happened that I never would have considered. You know, I, I wound up at, at this party one day, and um, this woman came up and she said hi to me, and she said, weren't you the one year weren't you the speaker for the one year anniversary that they have for all the people at this particular club? And I said, uh, this banquet. And I said, yes, I was. And we, we exchanged a little bit of, of talking for three or four minutes and, and kind of parted. And I really didn't talk to her anymore that night. And the next day at work, my phone rings number. I don't recognize. And, and I pick up the phone and it's this woman from the party, she had gotten my number from a mutual friend and called me. And she told me that, uh, you know, my recovery story was really interesting and inspiring to her. And, you know, she wanted to get to know me better and ask me out. And um, I said, well, okay, you know, I, I got your number here on my phone. You know, give me a couple of days and I'll, I'll call you and we'll, we'll set something up. And she did something <laughs> that nobody else has ever done to me before. She put me on the spot and she said, when? No. Oh. <laughs> And I thought, whoa, whoa, back off, stalker lady, you know, stalk off. I will get to it. And the funny thing is, is, you know, she's 25 years younger than I am. So I don't know if she's absolutely mentally crazy or if she wanted my AARP discount card. <laughs> but 
Whatever it takes. <laughs> Whatever it takes, you know. But, but she she asked me out, and you know we're we're now engaged, and we have this beautiful little two year old girl. You know, how did that happen? Well, actually, that one I know how it happened because I was actually present, had something to do with that happening. But you know, all of these other things in life, I don't know how they happened. I just showed up and put myself out there and said, I will trust in in this power. And, and all of these miraculous things began to happen. You know, I, today, I, today I'm happy. I, I, I enjoy life. You know, I wasn't born tall, dark, and handsome like I think I should have been. I didn't win that $1.8 billion lottery that that jerk in California here about six months ago won with my ticket. But you know what? I, I'm happy. I'm perfectly content with life exactly the way that it is in this moment in time. Right. Well, you know, it's and funny because Rick, Rick and my husband, he's 18 years older than me. So I I've, right. I, I didn't realize that AARP disc, I, I need to look into that. <laughs> I'm, I'm missing, I'm missing, uh, I'm missing, a, missing I'm a, missing a perk here. You are, you are, you're missing a perk. <laughs> you know, but I'll tell you something else real, real quick that, because as a result of doing that, for me personally, you know, Steps one, two, and three didn't make a whole lot of sense until I did step four. Right. And, you know, how am I going to find, you know, a loving experience of, of God or of love with a head full of hate and a heart full of anger? Sure. I couldn't. Mm-mm. So it wasn't, it wasn't until I did step four and got the anger and hate out of the way that steps one, two, and three automatically fell in place and became cemented. And made sense. Yeah. And made sense. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so I, so I tell people just do do the work. Just you know, do the deal. Re- yeah, just keep yeah. keep moving forward. Just keep. And if you fall down, for the love of God, just get back up. Just yeah. get back up. Don't don't. You know, the chair that you sit in in that room is yours. Don't you know? You can't let anybody kick you out of it, including yourself. Right, especially yourself. especially yourself, because everything in you is going to do whatever do whatever it can to keep you from from that recovery. And it's like get your ass up, get back sure. to your community, and just start again. It's worth yeah. it. it. This is I got to tell you, this is it's a beautiful life. It you is. know it is. that I that I get to do for the rest of my life. I get to hang out with people that know exactly how I feel at any given moment. Yeah. It's creepy how much they can call me on my shit. You know, but, I, you know, but, it, but it is, but it's beautiful as well. It is beautiful. I've got a I've got a friend in the program that that offices in the same building as me, and she'll come by yeah, every I, now and then, and we'll share. And and you know, she'll she'll go, well, well Christine, are, are you being a little selfish there? And I'm like, get the out of my office get out yeah you know but that's true i heard i heard that in her story on your podcast oh jennifer yeah yeah it was was great i thought it was great thank you and in in doing that like i said to me it cemented one two and three and you know everyone you'll you'll hear they'll tell you despite what the steps say they'll, they'll tell you in step two that you have to come to believe in god but step two says came to believe it's passive right. and past tense. It right. doesn't tell you when or how. Exactly. So that's so that's not true. Mm-hmm. And in step three, they say that you know you're supposed to figure this thing out. Well, no. The directions in step three in the book tell me I'm supposed to go out and be helpful to another human being, mm-hmm. and in doing that, I will be in alignment with my will and direction of love or God. Right. And so once I got the hate and stuff out of the way in step four. 
all of that came into place. And I had this experience one night, you know, I'd sit in meetings and I'd hear people talk about, you know, we, we all sit around in meetings trying to look really spiritual, particularly if you've got a few years behind you so that everybody will admire you. And, um, and I'm no different. I, you know, I wanted to do the same thing early in sobriety. And so I would always talk about, you know, all this stuff in step three. And I'd have people come up and tell me that is the best description of step three I've ever heard. And I'd pat myself on the back thinking, yeah, I know it is. But you know what? I, I didn't feel it. And I had this experience. My son was about two and a half, three years old. And um, he, came, he came to stay with me for his weekend. And we're at this grocery store. And we came walking out. He didn't want to hold my hand to walk across the parking lot. And there's cars coming and going. And, you know, um, eventually I get him to hold my hand. And we walk across the parking lot. And when I get to my car and I go to open the door, I get this voice in my head. And it said, you've just experienced step three, my son. It's putting your hand in mine and walking from a place where it's unsafe to a point where you can do it on your own. Mm -hmm. And I have never had a problem with step three since that moment. But see, and and the cool part about that too, is that little boy is going to try to let go of your hand and he's got, you know, he's got the capability, but it's like, I'm not letting go of you. I'm not letting go of you. No. Well, Christopher, you are amazing. And, and I just love that I have a new brother in recovery and, and a, a, a friend of, I'm sorry, but you're stuck with me. We've got a, we've got a friendship for life and um, you're, you're I, stuck with me as well. <laughs> I want to, I want to have you back on and, and, you know, sure. I, I think we're going to, we're going to expand the show a little bit and, and talk about, you know, different topics as far as shame and um, resentments and just, just have a jam session on, on a specific topic, you know, um, who, who knows what God's going to do with this, but, but I'll tell you, I, uh, I'm so grateful for you being willing to come on, on the show and share your experiences. Oh, absolutely. I love it. C- can I tell you one last little thing before of course, you let me go? Sure. In, in relation to that? Sure. So one weekend when my son was at my house, he used to, when he was really little, he used to like to sleep in my bed at night and he was sleeping in my bed this night. And it was like a perfect, it was like this scene from a movie. He, he was laying in bed and my son was one of those little kids that had a really fat, chubby little chipmunk cheek. Oh, yes. And, and the, the shades were drawn, and the moon was sitting just right. That came in through the, the side crack in the in the shades, um, and lit, had his face lit up. And as I, I as I lay there, I was looking at him, and I thought, "How beautiful you look as you lay there." I wonder what thoughts run through your head. Mm. Then I had then I had this thought. I wonder if God ever feels about me the way that I feel about you. No, oh, I betcha. And I got that voice again, and it said, "Yes, my son." Every time I see you, Aww. I feel exactly the way that you do right now. I love that. And I continued to have experiences like that over and over and over because I'm willing to do specific things to keep myself with, within, you know, within, the, within that, that, that grace and that, right. that, that framework of life. And it comes truly from helping other people. Yep. It doesn't come from helping myself. Mm-hmm. It comes from helping other people. And, and when staying I do connected. That, staying connected. Stay connected. Because, because all, if you're not connected, you're the one that let go of the hand. Right. The hand and didn't let go of, of you. No. And all of my life, I have felt apart from everything. Right. And today, I feel a part of something. Oh, and so that glad. is huge. I'm so glad. I'm so glad you're sober. Christopher, thank you so, so much for being on the Purpose Driven Podcast. Um, I will talk to you soon. I really hope so, and I'd love to come back and 
chit-chat about something else. You got it, sir. I'll look you up. God bless you. Thank you. Have a wonderful evening. Thank you, you so much. You as well. Bye-bye now. Bye. Thanks for listening to Purpose Driven Sobriety. Keep coming back. <laughs>